Hi, Pastor John, thanking you for joining our broadcast today. Isn't it true that we sometimes read scripture with our filters on? We see what we want to see at times, not necessarily what it actually says. And as a result of this, we sometimes miss the point. In today's sermon, we'll look at a passage in which it is easy to do exactly that. Join our service as we look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and Rapture or Exodus. I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me read through this passage. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk in and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, and who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing, and are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. 1990, my dad had just passed away, and Kelly Kelly and I uh, won, through a dealership I was working at, a trip to Hawaii. We were on the island of Maui. Anybody been there? Oh, so there were one or two. You know how beautiful the island of Maui is. While we were on the island, we kept on hearing about Hana and the road to Hana. So we were told several times this was beautiful. It was amazing. It was incredible. So we rented a Jeep, and we set out for Hana. Now, Hana is on the far east side of Hawaii, and you have to go around the north side of Maui to get there. And so the road was long. It took an afternoon to get up there, most of the morning, part of the afternoon. And we're driving along, and Kelly's going, oh, look at that. And I'm going, no, we got to get to Hana. Oh, look at this over here. No, we got to get to Hana. 
And, you know, there's waterfalls coming down of the mountains, black sand beaches. It, it really was incredible. But I needed to get to Hana because we were on the road to Hana, right? We got there. There's nothing there. A couple of houses. You know, you walk into a general store. They don't have much there. I got some souvenirs. But I'm like, hey, you know, the guy standing behind the counter. And I said, you know, we, we, we just spent all this time getting here. There's nothing here. He said, well, how'd you get here? So we came to Road to Hana. He went, you missed it. <laughs> it was the road to Hana that we were supposed to experience. It's easy to miss the point, isn't it? It's easy. It's easy to go in with preconceptions about something and miss what's actually going on. So, we're going to talk about that a little today because this is one of the great end time passages in the Bible. Or is it? The title of the sermon is Rapture or Exodus. We'll talk about that right at the end. So, you know, our series is called Living It Out. And let me just review this for you because it's based on First and Second Thessalonians. And I chose that title because of these two letters that are written to a new church that's struggling with establishing itself and trying to learn what their identity is and where it fits in their town and maybe, maybe even where it fits in their world. I think there's some parallels. Warrington Bible Fellowship has just emerged from an unprecedented time in world history. We've had a world pandemic. We've got to see firsthand knowledge about it through the internet and all this incredible media Find out what's happening over in China and, and down in South America and Africa all at one time. And the world has seen incredible changes. And I'm here to tell you that it may take the rest of our lives or maybe even longer before we understand the full impact that those changes have had upon us. Everybody said, well, we're going to need to go back to normal. And there are a lot of people saying there is no longer a normal. Suffice it to say that things have changed, and we're changing. We're changing. So how does all this work with us? Now, Paul raises issues and questions in his letters. He wants the church of Thessalonica to think. He wants them to think. And I'll tell you something. It's on my heart every time I stand up here before you on Sunday morning, every time we bring a guest speaker, is that you would leave here thinking, just thinking. That's what Paul wants. He wants them to think about what their church is. That's what we saw in chapter 1. We said, what, what, what kind of church do we want to be? He wants them to think about who they are as believers. That chapter 2 was what kind of believers do we want to be? wants him to think about what their calling is and how difficult it may be to walk in that calling. So chapter 3, our theme was comfort in affliction. These are all questions that we should be asking ourselves. We've been through changes, how they impacted us. What do they mean to us as we go forward? What will govern our choices? What will govern our path forward? Will it be the word of God? Or will it be something else? In today's passage, Paul begins to show the church, show them and us, how it should be acting as it works through all of these things, as it lives out 
this calling that they have. And they're in most unusual times. Brothers and sisters, so are we. We're in most unusual times. It ain't over. So we're going to see three sets of instructions here. We're going to learn about living in verses 1 through 8. We're going to learn about loving in verses 9 through 12. And then we're going to learn about leaving. I had to struggle with this one. In verses 13 through 18. So let, let's, let's see what Paul has to say about living in hard times. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he starts with the word finally. And it, it, don't, don't mistake that he's done with the letter. He's not. But he's summing up the first three points that he's made. The first three chapters. Because of everything he's stated so far, he says, Then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul has a request. He's being nice about it. He's asking. But his request has a high degree of urgency to it. It's not just an urgency, that, that, but a reminder that Paul is speaking in the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm asking you, no, I am imploring you, I am pleading you with all the authority that I have as an apostle that you may, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So Paul wants the Thessalonians not to just listen to his teachings. Not just to be hearers of the word. He wants them to be doers. He wants them to walk in the teachings. We hear the word often, walk often in the New Testament, don't we? What what does it mean? It means believers are to live the words that they've been given. Behave using them as their guidelines. Not to give them short shift. Not to just kind of give them a, a nod and a smile and go, yes, that sounds nice. Some sort of tacit approval. But to strive to make them part of their lives. Make them the foundation of their lives. Use them to govern everything that they do and everything that they say. They are to walk in them. They are to immerse themselves in the teachings and the words of Christ and in the scriptures we've been given. Now, Paul knows that this is exactly what they're trying to do. He knows that they have all of the fundamentals down. They've got the basics of the faith, and they're living in them. But when he says, do so more and more, he wants them to practice the word of God. He wants them to keep pursuing it. He wants them to go deeper, to keep doing it over and over and over again until it becomes an intrinsic part of their lives. Until it becomes instinctive and natural in them. Verse 2, he says, for you know that instru- what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He said, they've heard the teaching. They've done the basis. They've confessed their sins. They've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. They get all that. They've heard the word. Now they're, now they're being urged to do it all. Start doing this stuff that we talked about. Now, you know, we have an advantage over them, don't we? I mean, we look back and go, oh, but they were with Paul. You know, it's Paul, the apostle. He, he helped them start their church. We have the full counsel of the word. We have all of it. And we can easily access it, can we? How many of you are looking at the word on your phone? Yeah, some of us have got a, a, a book. Some of us are looking on a website. I mean, we, I mean, we can get it just about anywhere we want. And we can get it in, in any language and in a lot of different forms. 
All this should be so much easier for us than it was for them. So, why is this so important? Well, Paul says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God gives us his word. He gives us teachers of the word, like Paul, so that we can be sanctified. Now, we talk about sanctification a lot. And we say it's a process of being made holy. But it's so much more than that. It's a process of growing in our knowledge and awareness of who Christ is, of who God is. It's a process of knowing what the word says, not just kind of making it up or having somebody tell us, but experiencing it ourselves. And, and it's not just, you know, we've been talking about this. It's not just knowing what the word says, but it's doing it. It's allowing the word to govern our lives. Now, that's easy for us to say here on Sunday morning, isn't it? What about Monday? You know, what about Monday when the world's tugging in us four or five different directions? When our desires begin to rise up and they're not really in harmony with the word, what do we do with that? Well, that's a process of sanctification as we more and more sacrifice our desires and allow God to have his way in us. It becomes easier and easier. But you know what? We've got to start somewhere. See, this is a danger in thinking that the Bible's about us. This is a danger in thinking that God wrote a love letter to us. That's what I've been told. Okay. The Bible's about God. It's about the creator of everything and the fact that we are being conformed to his image. We're being molded into his likeness. I think it's really easy for us to think that we'd like to mold God into our likeness. Somebody said back in the beginning, God created man in his own image and man's been trying to return the favor ever since. Sanctification is a process of being more and more like God. And Paul wants to explain what sanctification looks like. So he gives an example. Now listen very carefully, because this is not an exhaustive list. And Paul's not trying to make a point about a particular thing here. He's trying to give us an example of what sanctification looks like. He says, for it is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul thinks that they need to be reminded. Now, there is a context here. We'll get to that in a little bit. But he thinks that they need to be reminded to keep themselves pure. Now, remember the gods of Thessalonica, Dionysus, the god of wine, merrymaking, and insane behavior, and Serapsis, the god of resurrection in the underworld. Those are the two dominating gods in Thessalonica. Temples all over the place. The church in Thessalonica was immersed in the culture that worshipped having a good time. That worshipped making themselves happy. That worshipped pure evil highlighted by the thought that there was going to be a resurrection. Now, we hear that and we go, oh, they think the same thing. That's not what they thought. Their concept of resurrection is no matter what you did, you get to come back and do it again. Oh, 
All this was integral to the teaching that the Thessalonians grew up with. Part of their hearts. They had habits that needed to be broken. They had ungodly behavior that they were going through and, and access to sensual pleasures, desires that were inculcated in them from an early age. So Paul urges them to be aware of this and resist it. Now, you might not struggle with these issues. Okay, but Paul is saying to us, if there's something that's standing between you and God, if there's some ungodly behavior in your life, if there's some impediment for a deeper relationship between you and God, be aware of it. And you might be sitting there thinking, oh, but I've always been taught. Compare that to what the Word says. I mean, aren't we talking about making the Word our guidelines and our counsel? Compare what you've been taught to what the world says, what the word says. So he says, resist this in verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now he's talking about don't judge people over this. Don't condemn them. Don't ostracize them. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, we've been talking for a while about the battle belonging to me. Is that right? The battle belongs to the Lord. He said, it's not your job to go out there and fight these things. It's not your job to judge people. It's not your job to condemn people. The Lord does that. Don't go around trying to take the burden off of God for him and make things easier for him. So he solemnly warned him against that. And he said, verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul wants the Thessalonians to live like godly people. To honor God more than they honor themselves. To be ambassadors of God in an evil environment. He wants them living according to the teaching of the word. The mode of living should be dominated by our second set of instructions. He wants them living like godly people. And the way they're going to do that is they are to be loving. Verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He says, you got that. You're doing it. You're loving each other. Verse 10, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now he's saying you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job of loving the people in the church. But he wants them to do more and more. So are they supposed to find other churches and love them too? Paul knows a a few things. But he wants to urge him to love the people in the church for, for one specific reason. Because Paul knows that over time, that that love that they have for each other can be tested. Issues can arise. The initial excitement of a brand new church in a brand new city, can fall into an easy familiarity with each other. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Some can get offended. Personalities can collide. 
You know, this is, this is it's just like a marriage, isn't it? You have the wedding, the ceremony, there's a big party, there's a honeymoon, this is fantastic, this is amazing. And then you get home and one day you wake up and each one of you has bad breath. What do we do with this? Paul said, be on the guard against letting your love wane. It takes a conscious effort to focus on loving each other and extending that love to the rest of the body of Christ. And, and not only are believers called to love each other, but Paul wants them to love people that are not in the church. He wants love to characterize their interactions with all of the people around them. He wants them to be noted for the fact that they love. And see, this is one of the problems that the churches run into today. What a lot of our churches are noted for is their capability to judge, to point the fingers, say, what's wrong with you? You should be more like me. Same trap the Pharisees fell into in the first century. So he wants them to love everyone, and in verse 11, to aspire to live, listen to this, quietly, and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you and to respond to every post on social media that you don't like. <laughs> wants them to live quietly, mind their own business. Now, this would have been hard to do in first century Macedonia. And I'll tell you why. By, by, by this time, by the time this, this letter's written, persecution of Christians had begun. People were dying for their faith. Now, let, put this into context of this letter that Paul's writing when he talks about afflictions. It's not just they might have lost their job or maybe they lost their social circle. People were losing their lives. They were executed by the authorities for not worshiping Caesar, murdered by the neighbors for being different, for causing problems. The church would need some firm resolve and a healthy dependence on the Holy Spirit to be able to live a quiet life, to be lovers of others in a culture that rejected them and hated them, thought they were a nuisance and a danger. Does that all, it all sound like the environment that we're in right now? Does the culture around us think that we're a nuisance and a danger? Paul could have written this letter to us. Paul wants them to continue to be different, to be set apart, to absorb the hate and anger levied at them, to refuse to allow their surroundings to dictate what they desire and how they respond to them. He doesn't want them to depend on the people around them for their identity and for their joy and for their peace so that it will all be examples. He says so in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before who? Outsiders. And be dependent on no one. Now, now there, there, there's something in here that we need to pay attention to when he says be dependent on no one. Uh, I mean, we hear the message be dependent on God alone, Right? But he's addressing the custom of patronage. Now, this, this was predominant in the uh, Roman Empire. Uh, a lot of towns operated under a client-patron relationship. Uh, it would have been true in particular in the big trade cities, and Thessalonica was one of the largest trade cities. And the way that worked was a client 
one of a lower social standing, one who was not well-to-do, would be supported by a patron, somebody who was rich, and in particular, somebody who was rich and influential. And in return, the client would then give his support to his patron whenever it was demanded. In other words, the client would do whatever the patron wanted him to do. So while the Thessalonian church was surrounded by rich people, it would be easy for them to depend on those rich folks to support and sustain the church. They've got a lot of money. Let's bring them in here, and we'll get them to put up a new building and finance all of our ministries and buy new Bibles when they're written in 500 years. Paul wants them dependent on God, not on other people. So in short, Paul wants this young church living the word of God, focused on God, dependent on God, and if they're obedient to his word, then loving those around them, and these things will be easier to do if they're obedient to the word. So after giving them instructions on living and loving, Paul now wants to teach them about leaving. What will, and, and the question is, what, what will the afterlife look like? And so with the worship of Serapsis, the God of the underworld and resurrection, with that negated, because Paul told them that's not a good teaching, now the Thessalonians apparently have some questions as to what happens to their loved ones who have died. Well, you know, if they're not coming back here to do all that over again, where do they go? What happens to them? Paul's going to address this with a godly theology of resurrection. And it's highly probable that all this is, is on the minds of a lot of people in the church. Paul's been talking about afflictions, and now some of them are dying, have already been martyred, and those remaining are suffering from grief. They don't know what to do with this. And you know, when you lose somebody close, there's a hole in your heart. Paul's not saying, don't grieve. What he's saying is there's an appropriate way to do this. So in verse 13 he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, we have no, who have no hope. So we have to read this carefully, because it introduces the primary subject of this paragraph. And we don't want to miss this. Paul wants to bring comfort to those who have lost loved ones. He wants to remind them that there's hope for believers, that there's more to, to life than the earthly realm. It's all based on the resurrection of Christ, so there's no reason to grieve the same way that unsaved people grieve. Parting is only temporary, and all of this is based on a promise, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Wow. Paul tells them the loved ones and friends that they're grieving over, if they're believers, are going to come back. They're going to come back when Jesus comes back. Paul reminds them that the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that that promise is true. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
Interesting verse. It can be read as several different ways. And when you find out that it can be read several different ways, you begin to figure out why it's so hard to figure out how the end times are going to roll out and why there's so many different perspectives. For some, this verse reads that those who are alive are not going to go up before those who are dead are resurrected. Other people read this and and say, oh, the dead are going to be brought to heaven spiritually with Jesus before he returns. Now, it, it, it can be either one. And I can be honest with you. This is not the most vital verse in this passage. We're not sure how it works. And I'm here to tell you, no one, is, no one else is either. We don't know. But we can be sure of this. Verse 16. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the dead, at least we know, the dead will be physically resurrected first. Verse 17, then we who are alive, if he came today, he'd be talking about us, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So those who are still alive, remaining on earth, will be caught up with the Lord. Now, here's, here's where we run into problems. Because we read this and we want to form a doctrine around it. And, and so we want to say, okay, this is what the end times are going to look like. Now, what, what we've been taught is a, a perspective called dispensational premillennialism. There are three other perspectives, at least. Somebody sent me an email saying, you didn't mention none of the above. <laughs> Okay. Now, we, we sent some charts out, and I sent a little video to kind of explain. And a lot of times, people are surprised. I thought we all thought the same thing. No, no, you know, you go to an Orthodox church, you go to a Lutheran church, uh, they think something completely different than we're all going to be taken up and go away for a thousand years and come back and, you know, and so on and so forth. So there are different perspectives. And if you didn't receive those, let me know. I'll send them to you. They're interesting. But the truth of the matter is we don't know. There are very, very good, very, very educated, very qualified people that think very differently about what this means. And ultimately, you're going to have to decide where you are in all this. If we read the scriptures objectively, it actually reveals very little about the details of Christ's return. A snippet here and a verse there, that sort of thing. But keep in mind that the Thessalonians are distraught over losing their loved ones. They don't know what to believe. Well, they're not sure what to make of the teaching Paul left with them. Paul told them Christ would come back for all of them. So they kind of got that, but they're wondering as to what the nuts and bolts are. So even when he says that Christ will come back for all of them, they have the natural questions. Are we talking about all of us? Only believers? Well, what about the dead? What happens to them? How does it happen? There are questions that we still struggle with today. We don't know how all this works. Paul tells them not to grieve the way unbelievers do. They have no hope. Unbelievers have no comfort, nothing to hold on to. But believers do. They do have something to hold on to. Their hope for themselves and their loved ones is in Jesus Christ. It's the only hope they have. 
if some have been martyred, and if some have suffered greatly, the little bit of comfort you get from that is that none of the suffering was in vain, and it's only temporary because everybody's going to be resurrected, everybody's coming back. And if we understand that, do you see what it means to us? It means that our suffering is temporary. It means that our personal suffering is, is not in vain. There's reason and purpose to it. It doesn't make it any easier, but it tells us that our, our love, we'll see our loved ones again. We're all going to be together again, reunited in Christ. He's our hope. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So did you see what just happened here? The encouragement that Paul has, it's meant to comfort and bring peace, is not some unsolvable riddle that we're going to debate over until we stand in front of the Lord and find out we're all wrong. (laughs) The main message is this. As believers, as believers, we're all going to leave together. We're all going to be together forever. So we have these we have these three sets of instructions. Remember, this book was written in the mid-50s, the first century. 20 years after the resurrection, Nero had just begun the persecution and purging of Christians. It wasn't just the Christians, though. Nero was was executing everybody who disagreed with him, everybody who stood against the teachings of Rome, teaching of Nero as being a divine individual. Within 10 years of this book being written, all of the apostles, except maybe John, will have been martyred, brutally tortured, along with thousands of other believers. So the Thessalonians are struggling. They're being persecuted. Some of them are dying for their faith. They've been taught this pagan and evil lessons about the afterlife. And they have questions. And Paul wants to comfort them and encourage them. So he gives them these instructions. They're here to help them along, to give them something to hold on to as they go through hard times and to relieve some of their grief. He tells them about living. He wants them to appropriate the word of God. And that means to assume it, to to make it part of your DNA, to live and walk in it, to live it out, to make it their focus and their guidelines for how they get through their day. He wants them loving. The word tells them to love those around them. Listen, it tells them to love those around them, not to fight with them, not to argue with them, not to judge them, not to ostracize them, not to debrate them, but to love them. And to start by loving others that are believers and then let that extend to those that are not. He tells them about leaving. Paul wants them to know that when Jesus comes back, all believers go with him. Everyone who's called on his name, they are already united with him. We talk about this frequently. They're already in union with him. Even those who have died, the ones we miss, the ones we all long to see. We'll see him again. All this is based on the reality of the resurrection of Christ, which serves to validate every promise that he made. He's the only one that came back. No false teaching, no dark hour of doubt, 
even no misunderstanding about how it all rolls out, can negate the promise that we have in Christ. So this chapter is not a template for the end times. It's just not there. It's about that assurance. It's about that promise. And this is why it says so much about the promise and so little about the rapture. I want you to think about this for a second. Just a little bit of an aside. But we, as 21st century Protestants, take a lot on the rapture. The Bible actually has very, very little to say about a rapture. Oh, we pick up a verse here, a prophecy there. We read Daniel, we go, look. We read Revelation 20, we go, look. We read this, we go, look. It really has very little to say about it. It has a whole lot to say about Exodus. Think about this. Yeah, I encourage you to think about the, the overarching narrative of the Bible. There are exoduses all over the Bible. There's an exodus out of the garden. All of God's people ejected from the garden. There's another exodus onto the ark and off the ark into the world that's been purged of evil. There's an exodus out of Egypt. Then another exodus into the promised land. And then as the Holy Spirit comes down and persecution starts, there's an exodus out of Jerusalem into Samaria and the outer parts of the world. And each one of those exoduses takes God's chosen ones together. There are some consequences along the way, but they're together. One day, one day there's going to be a final exodus into the new creation. And that will include all of God's people together. So this chapter is about comfort and assurance. It's not meant to teach us about the end times. And we should be careful not to try to form a doctrine around a few words in the middle of a chapter that doesn't, isn't really intended to talk about that. You see, I missed the point on the road to Hana. I missed it because when I turned onto that road, I made up my mind concerning why the road was there and what I was doing on it. I had preconceptions, predeterminations, And I miss the beauty and the grandeur of a magnificent trip through the northern reaches of little island called Maui. I miss the point. We can easily miss an even more magnificent trip through the word of God. If we make a similar mistake of deciding what it says before we even begin reading it. The point of the end times is not how we get there. The fact that we are there. If you confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you'll be there with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises you give us, Lord. We pray that we would embrace them with all our might and all our power. We set aside preconceptions, set aside the the pressures of the, the culture around us, Father, and focus upon you, focus upon your word, that we might walk, Lord, in a manner worthy of the high and holy calling that you've put upon us, Father. So help us to read the word with the help of the Holy Spirit and embrace it for all the truth and beauty that it has. And we thank you, Father. We thank you that regardless of what we think about the nuts and bolts, 
The promise is that we'll all be together with you for eternity. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you for tuning in online. We'll be back next week with chapter 5. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.